Church, I am so excited to get to stand before you tonight. You know, I've, I've worked for the past five days in a row. I, most of you know I'm an ER nurse. I work overnight, 7P to 7A. I've, I've worked 60 hours in the past five days. I didn't finish this message that I'm going to give to you here in a little bit until about 4 o'clock this morning. I thought for a little while, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just pass this off to somebody else. I'll ask somebody else to do this because I'm, I'm tired, a little worn out. But God has a message for his people. And I am glad that no matter what we have going on in our daily lives, no matter what we struggle with, God is still able to speak to us and he's able to speak through us. So tonight, I'm, if, if you need to be released for uh, youth, anybody else, if you have classes, please feel free at this time to be released. Everyone else, you may have a seat. I'm going to have an opening verse here in a little bit, but you can stay seated because I need to do a little bit of an introduction here. As many of you know, each Wednesday for this, for this past year, we've been looking at a book or a couple books of the Bible, kind of going through them on Wednesdays. And, and this month, very fittingly, as we enter into the holiday season, we're going to be looking primarily at the book of Luke. So I'm going to do a series uh, for the next couple Wednesdays called Looking to Luke. Tonight's message in Looking to Luke is simply this, a known end. A known end. Now, if you're like me, I, I've grown up watching uh, action movies and uh, reading action uh, books about action and things like that. And uh, one common plot device or thing that they use in a lot of these movies is they'll start the movie or the book off kind of at the end, the, the final battle, if you will, the final big scene. And they say, okay, now let me tell you how we got to this point. And they'll back up and they'll start the story from the beginning. And usually what happens is in these stories, you kind of know the end from the beginning, but you then see the progression of the, the character. You see the development of the character. And inevitably, you see some choices that are made by the character, the, the protagonist, if you will, that leads to this final moment. Often, that main character may have made some mistakes along the way. And this final battle is a battle of redemption for this character. So when we look at the story of Christ, believe it or not, we have kind of sort of a similar concept. And, and I'm going to take a little liberty tonight and, and kind of tell this, the Christmas story but from the end. We're going to start from the end of the Christmas story because Christmas is not just about Christ in a manger. To do this, I actually want to start in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. You see, while Matthew, Mark, Luke all tell the story of Christ's birth, uh, or the, the life of Christ from the beginning, the prophecy of the death of Christ is actually mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'm not going to read it tonight, but feel free to look it up later. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, prophesies of a coming Messiah who would crush the enemy, but in so doing would have to sacrifice his own life in the process. So from the very beginning, we've had the prophesied end, a known end of the Messiah. But let's look for a most, one of the most detailed accounts in the Old Testament of this known end. In Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 1, it says this, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The prophet Isaiah is asking, 
you know, us prophets have been around for a little while, and we've been prophesying about this stuff, but nobody ever tends to believe us, right? So he's, he's saying, who is the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when he sh we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Even in the book of Luke, at the very beginning, we see that Jesus, much like anyone else, starts his journey out as a child, as a small, humble child. Scripture doesn't make us believe that he was any different than any other child. He wasn't this extravagantly beautiful child that stood out from all the rest of the people. He was just a normal child as the world perceived him. Verse 3, but then it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Every time I read the account of Calvary, I am struck by the statements that are made by the crowd. They mocked Jesus as being forsaken by God. They asked Jesus, oh, Jesus, if, you're, if you are the Son of God, call down angels and take you down from this cross. What have you done? God has forsaken you. He's left you here on this cross. What they didn't know is that at any moment, Jesus didn't need to call for angels. He didn't need to call for some external power. He had power over himself. At any moment, he could have taken himself off that cross. At any moment. Jesus didn't need help from anyone else. But he took all of those statements. He listened to the hatred from the world being thrown at him over and over, knowing that it was not deserved, knowing that they didn't even truly understand what they were saying. They, they spoke all of this sarcastically, but what they failed to, to realize is that Jesus never needed help from anyone. He willingly accepted the hatred. Why? Listen to this. Because his love is more powerful than anything the world could throw at him. All of the hate and the vitriol and the sin of mankind was not powerful enough to overpower the love of Christ. That he still willingly hung there on a cross despite all of that because his love for you and for me was greater than our own sin. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now I want you to understand, this is written in the book of Isaiah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was ever even born. But listen to when Matthew recounts the part of the story where Jesus is standing before Pilate. Verse 11 in, in Matthew, uh, I actually didn't write down the chapter, I think it's in chapter 19. 
But verse 11 says this, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witnessed against thee? And he answered to him, Never a word, in so much that the governor marveled greatly. The power of this is that Jesus at any moment could have given a defense that would have shut down all of his accusers. At any moment he could have spoke truth that would have shut down all of the lies being spoken against him. But as, pro the, as the Isaiah prophet mentioned, hundreds of years before his uh, uh, death, he stood silent before his accusers. Why? Why did he do this? We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. This phrase, made his grave, encompasses both the death and the burial of Jesus. Jesus died with the wicked at Calvary, hung on a cross next to two criminals who deserved what they were receiving, and yet Christ deserved none of it because he was innocent. And yet after his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. We know Joseph of Arimathea, if you've heard the story. Offer went to Pilate and said, listen, can I bury Jesus in my tomb because he has no tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, which fulfills to an exactness what the, what the prophet Isaiah said, that he was murdered with thieves, but also with the rich he made his grave. I, I look at this and, and, and how exact, how amazingly detailed this prophecy is. Now here's the thing. The disciples and the other Jews, they would have known about this prophecy. They were very intimately familiar with the prophet Isaiah. They would continually recount the scroll of Isaiah in the temple. This was a reading that was done commonly. So they would have known all of these things. Yet, despite this amazingly in-depth prophecy, the disciples, even the disciples, didn't understand the true nature of Christ's sacrifice. But before we bash them too hard, let's look to the book of Luke for some clues as to why this is. I'm going to bounce back and forth between Luke chapter 9 and chapter 18. So if you want to read later, Luke chapter 9 and chapter 18 is where I'm going to be kind of coming from with a couple of these verses here. In Luke chapter 9 verse 18 it says this, And it came to pass as he was alone praying. His disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, whom say the people that I am? They answered him, saying, Some say John the Baptist, but some say Elias. And others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Now we read this passage and we, we tend to think, well, Peter gets it. He gets it. I mean, he, he recognized who Jesus was, that he was, and Luke tells us, Christ of God. And, and Matthew says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, is the way Matthew recounts. So it seems that, that Peter gets it. He understands what's going on here. Look at what Luke 18, verse 31 says. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted, upon, or spitted on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. Here Jesus lays it out very plainly as to what's going to happen. And in light of what they should have known from Isaiah 53, they should have caught exactly what he was talking about. But listen to what verse 34 of that very same chapter in 18 says. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken catch that? They didn't understand the significance of the coming crucifixion because it was hidden from them. Now before you accuse me of stretching scripture, let's look back to chapter 9 of Luke in verse 44 and 45. Luke chapter 9 verse 44 and 45. Remember Luke chapter 9 is where I originally read how he told them he prophesied of his own death. Listen to what verse 44 says. Let these sayings Sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But look at verse 45. But they understood not the saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. Now I could sit here and pontificate on why it was hidden from the disciples. Maybe it was Peter's brash nature. Jesus knew that if he told Peter, Peter would try to do something to stop it. He would, he would, we see that happen in the garden, right, when they come to take him away. Maybe it was old doubting Thomas's disbelief. If, if he told Thomas, Thomas would run away already. But that's not the point of why I want to bring this up. The reason I'm bringing this up is simply this. Jesus walked this earth his whole life knowing that he was going to be betrayed by the very people he came to save. He was going to be mocked. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be lied on and cursed at. But despite all of this, he walked this earth bearing this burden alone. Why? Because only he could. Only the, the blameless, the spotless, the perfect Lamb of God could carry such a weight. And he did it for you and he did it for me. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now I know what some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's December 1st. It's Christmas time. 
why are you talking about all of this like heavy stuff of Christ and, and Calvary and, and, and it's Christmas, you're supposed to be giving a, me a message of hope, a message of joy and you know we got Christmas presents under the tree. But listen, the greatest Christmas gift ever given is not a new iPad, it's not a new car, it's not the latest greatest gadget or name brand clothing. The greatest gift ever given on Christmas was a lamb that was slain before the very foundations of the world. The greatest gift given to this earth happened from its very inception, a lamb who would die on our behalf. An innocent lamb that was destined to pay the price for my sins. It's easy to talk about your sins. It's easy to talk about, oh yeah, he died for you because you're such a wicked person, but he died for my sins too because I was headed down a road of destruction. I had made choices in my life that would have led me to my own damnation. Even after living for God, even after walking for God, I, I've made mistakes. I've made choices that were not beneficial to my own spiritual life. And if I was left to my own devices, if I was left to my own sin, I would have walked right back down that road to hell. But God, in his infinite mercy and grace, continued to pull after my heart and pull after my soul with conviction that said, I know you're doing the wrong thing, but my love is calling for you. Come back. Come back. Stop walking that way. I gave this gift for you from the foundations of the world because I love you. I have mercy on your soul. He had a known end and yet still chose to suffer because of his love for you and me. So while you're scurrying around Amazon trying to find that perfect gift for your children and loved ones, please remember this. The greatest gift God ever gave to this world on Christmas was his life. And the greatest gift you can give God is to give him back your life. The greatest gift that you can give for this Christmas is not a new toy. It's your life. Give God your life back. Because he purchased it with his blood. He paid the ultimate price for that life. So let me wrap all of this up. I didn't have a long message for you tonight, but let me wrap all of this up by explaining to you what that means. What does it look like to give God your life? Because, you know, it's an easy thing. In, in Christianity, we just say, oh, just pray the prayer of forgiveness. Give God your life, and that's it. You're all done. But, you know, the Bible actually says a whole lot more about what it means to give God your life. So let's just look at a little, of the, a little of this. In John chapter 15, John chapter 15, starting in verse 12, this is my commandment. Ooh, and there's a really powerful two-letter word coming up here. So pay attention. Really powerful. That ye love one another as I have loved you. Remember how I just spent all this time telling you that, that Christ knew that he was going to be betrayed and cursed at and, and used and abused and, and yet uh, despite knowing all of that he still chose to love us and he still, still chose to give his life for us well this says that this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you it's kind of heavy 
Because our natural tendency is to look at this world and say, well, you, you don't deserve my love anymore. You lied and, and, and cheated on me. You, you, you betrayed me. You were mean to me. You did all this stuff to me. I don't have to love you anymore. You don't deserve it. You didn't deserve God's love either. But he gave it anyway. Verse 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what, the Lord, what his Lord doth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Verse 16, listen to this. I love the first part of this verse. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. That you should go, for, go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of, my, of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. If God calls you, he will also ordain and equip you. Too often in this Christian walk, we say we can't reach this group or we can't reach that group because we're not qualified, we're not educated enough, we're, we're too introverted, we're too shy, we're too poor, we're too rich, we're too whatever we want to say, whatever excuse we want to say. But God did not call you because of your talent. God did not call you because of your education. God did not call you because of your race or your ethnicity or your gender or any of those other things. God called you because he is the one who qualifies you. It's his righteousness that equips you to be able to reach a lost and dying world. God called you because he loves you. And your job is to then share that love with others. God will equip you. Just be faithful and bear fruit. Verse 17, these things I command you that ye love one another. I hope you notice the theme here. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Now this is not an end time message, but if it were, I would point out here that there was a dangerous lie propagated through many churches, unfortunately, that says the church can't be here for the tribulation period because God would never allow his people to suffer. And yet I just read in verse 20 that says we are not greater than our Lord. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Jesus said if I suffer persecution, you will suffer persecution. This world hated me, it will hate you also. But yet despite that hate, Christ still died. Christ still gave, Christ still loved. So despite the tribulation, despite the hatred, despite the persecution, we are still called to give, to love, to be merciful, to be graceful toward others. But this is not an end time message, so let me bring this back to where, where our message is. This world will hate you because it hated him, but he loved in spite of their hatred. Which means we are called to do the same. 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 says this. 
Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life. How do we know? Because we love the brethren. He hath loved not his brother, or he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And listen, the word brother here does not mean another man, right? Mankind is what's the implication. Your brother or your sister, all of mankind. That's how you know you pass from, life, from death unto life. When you love like God loved. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I could spend an entire message on that last phrase. Because this world has warped and twisted what love means beyond all recognition. We are to love in deed and in truth. And who is truth? God is truth. The Bible says that his word is true. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot love if you do not know Christ. Because God is love. And if you are not connected to the source of love, you cannot love properly. Church, as we enter into this Christmas season, I want to challenge you to see this as an opportunity to give a gift to the king. We'll work extra hours, spend our hard-earned money to give gifts to our loved ones, to our children. But I'm asking you this holiday season, would you be willing to give a gift to the king? A gift of sacrifice. This pastoral team has a saying, our lives for yours. This saying is simply an echo of what Christ taught and lived throughout his life. His life was given for us. And now we endeavor to, endeavor to give our life for this church. I am excited to continue on our journey through Luke. This week we looked at an expected end or a known end. Next, next time I stand before you, I'm going to share with you the soon coming king. Now as we all stand, I want to close tonight... I'm not, it's not really going to be an altar call, per se. I'm definitely not stopping you from coming to this altar. And if that is what you feel led to do, please, by all means, do so. Listen to what God is telling you. But I, I want to close tonight by playing just a little bit of a song. Some of you will have heard it. Sometime, for some of you, this may be the first time hearing it. Just going to play about two minutes of the song. And I want you to reflect. Whether that's you just stand there and you close your eyes and you reflect, that's fine. If you want to raise your hands and worship, that's fine. If you want to come and pray at the altar, that's fine too. But just take a moment, just two minutes is all I'm asking, to reflect on what the words of the song is saying. Because when you get what the song is saying in your heart, I'm hoping it will inspire you this Christmas season to make that commitment to give the gift of your life back to the King of Kings. So as they begin to play the song, I just ask, Reflect, and then at the end of those two minutes, I'm going to come and I'm going to say a closing prayer.
of what the mercy of God can do. If you knew me then, you'd believe me now. He turned my whole life upside down. Took the old and he made it new. That's just what the mercy of God can do. Now I'm alive to tell the story how I've overcome. It's just goodness and mercy and the power of his blood. I'm so glad that my freedom wasn't based on what I've done. The goodness and mercy and the power of the blood. So much power in the blood. and based on what I've done but the goodness and mercy and the power song play for those who want to pray please pray if you want to be dismissed I just ask that you take all conversations out front and be respectful of those who want to sit and listen and reflect and pray thank you for coming I love you and I'll see you guys on Wednesday